Let's join together in prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, and we thank you for being with us this morning. As we turn to your word, God, we pray that you will open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds, that we might hear your word spoken to us, and we pray that your Holy Spirit will illuminate the scriptures for our And we pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we've come to place our lives before your open word. So speak to us by the power of your spirit. May we know a little bit more what it means to be human, what it means to be created by you, and uh, what it means to be tempted, how, and how we can follow you more faithfully. We pray that you will uh, lift up our hearts today and clarify our thinking and our understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, we are, we are in a series called um, This Is My Story, and we're looking at the overall narrative of the Scripture, the story of the Scripture. It is a story that is meant to guide all of our other little daily stories that we The Bible, even though it consists of so many different genres, and even though it was written by many different people over hundreds and hundreds of years, it all comes together to form one consistent story. And like any story, the Bible has narrative qualities. It has a setting. It has a beginning. It has conflict. And then it works through the conflict, and it has a climax, and then it has resolution um, to the climax as well. And so we're looking at these narrative qualities of the Scriptures. Do I have a sound uh, issue going on? We're not, it was my box. We're going to go with the handheld again. All right, here we go. Thanks. All right, we will hopefully um, get to these sound issues uh, in time, but... I'm going to use the handheld today, and as I said, we're, we're looking at the Scriptures, and, and last week we were in the creation story, the first creation story. There are two creation stories um, in, in, the, in the Bible, and Genesis 1 is the first creation story, and Genesis 2 is the second creation story, but the second creation story and the fall, which we're going to look at today, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, are really meant to be read and understood as one story. And so uh, we see the, the wonderful art that uh, Donna Ree has put together for us for the series. Last week we saw the, the world that God created in seven uh, days, figurative days. And, uh, and he called the creation good and, and then he made humankind and he looked upon the creation and said it is very good. And today we get uh, another story which, which is actually a narrative rather than um, poetry. And so in the first, in the first creation account, um, it tells us that God created the universe, called it good and beautiful. The second account tells us how it all kind of got messed up. And so whereas the first creation story was written in Hebrew poetry and it was a liturgy and that liturgy was a creed, the second creation story is a narrative. Um, but like the first account, God, uh, in the second account, God cre unlike the first account, God creates the heavens and the earth and then creates humankind before the vegetation and the animals and all of that. So let's take a look at our scriptures, our first text. We're going to kind of walk through the scriptures again 
and uh, as we um, move through the story this morning, and let's take a look at Genesis 2, verse 4b through 7. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You know, at many graveside services, as well as Ash Wednesday um, services, the minister often says, from dust we have come, and to dust we shall return. Or you might have heard the phrase, from ashes to ashes, and to dust to dust. And that's where we get this phrase that we hear at these kinds of services, right here from this text. We get it from this story that teaches us that we come from the earth. And that kind of really ties in with science, which says that we come from the elemental building blocks of life, and we're sort of carbon-based life forms, and so it kind of ties together. But in my limited imagination, I love to picture this. Um, you know, in the first creation story, it's really beautiful poetry as God speaks and things come into being. But here, I, I picture God, um, uh, God's hand in the dust, in the dirt, and the ground, forming the man out of the dirt. And then, as the as the fo- as the as the body comes into shape, it's as though God breathes and goes and breathes life into the man. And of course, the word in Hebrew for breath is the word ruach, and it means wind or breath or spirit. It's the word that we use for the Holy Spirit. And so God breathes into the, into the man, and there's this sense in which there's a soul that God gives to the man when God breathes into, uh, into the body. So there's some kind of a soul that's beyond the physicality of the human being. But it's not quite as lovely as a story of the first creation account, you know? It's literally a little bit dirtier. Um, and, and it's not quite as beautiful when God just speaks and beauty appears. Instead, we have this creation out of dust. And in Genesis 2.8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And so in this story, the garden and the vegetation come after the man was created. In the first story, God creates everything and then creates humankind and looks upon the, the uh, creation and says it is good. In this creation account, um, God forms uh, the man and puts him into the garden and, uh, and then starts to create vegetation and the animals and then gives the man the, the command to name all of the animals. Now, I just want to remind you that just as Genesis 1 is um, not meant to be read as a science lecture, it's not that God said, let's put a science lecture in Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning of the Bible, um, but that it's an archetypal story. It's poetry and it's a liturgy. And in the same way, Gen- the second creation account in Genesis 2 and 3, we're given a, a narrative 
uh, story. So it's not poetry in the same way, but it's a narrative that is also meant to be read as an archetype, right? Uh, an archetype story. And so it's not only so much to be understood as the history of two people who may have lived thousands or millions or billions of years ago, but the story is written to teach you about yourself. It's not just a story that happened, it's a story that happens over and over and over again in your life and in mine. I'm going to explain that a little bit. And so when we're talking about an archetypal story, it means that it's a pattern. It's a pattern that repeats itself, and it teaches us something about what it means to be human. It's meant to hold up a mirror to our own soul so that we can see why we struggle and why we as a human race continue to find that paradise is lost, and we'll see that in a minute, and the garden is still messed up and the role that we play in that. And so this story teaches that. And so when you, look, uh, when you look at this thing and you say that it's archetypal, excuse me, I'm not saying that you can't believe that it's also historical. But you know, Adam and Eve, the, the name, um, the, their names are symbolic. Adam means uh, man of the earth and Eve means life giver. And so when you look at the Garden of Eden and where the Garden of Eden was, if you are committed to a literal historical reading of, gar of the Garden of Eden, you're going to have a hard time when you try to look at where these rivers were. Do you remember what it said uh, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 10? It says, a river flows out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divides and becomes four branches. And so according to the text, the, the Garden of Eden had this river with its headwaters in Eden and it went out from there and broke into four different rivers, four branches. And so there's this river and its headwaters split into these four rivers. And the rivers are the Pashan, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Now you've probably heard of the Tigris and the Euphrates because there's still rivers that we know of today, but maybe you have not heard of the Pishon and the Gihon if you're new to the scriptures because we don't really know where they were. We kind of know where the lands were, where they were talking about. The Pishon flows around the land of Havilah and we think that's something like Saudi Arabia. The Gihon flows around the land of Cush, and that's kind of like Ethiopia, Nubia, down below the Red Sea, just south of Egypt. And so if we know this, and so we've, we've got, got some, some ideas, ideas of where those rivers, rivers flow, the story tells us that it has the headwaters in Eden, Eden and, they and they end, end up flowing, flowing in these places. places. So, so we, we can, can just, just look, look at the map of the ancient Near East, East and if, if this, this map, map looks familiar to you, because it's a similar map that we were looking at when we were studying Paul's life, and you can see kind of on the north end of the map, you see where Antioch is. That's, That's Antioch, Antioch of Syria, Syria where, where the Christians, Christians first, first became Christians. Christians. Well, way, 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 way back, back before that, that um, we're, we're talking, talking now about Eden. Eden. And, uh, and, uh, and so, so you, you can see the Euphrates, Euphrates River, River kind of on uh, near Antioch of Syria. And then, and then you, you have, have the Tigris River. Bo they're, they're both in um, eastern, eastern Turkey. Turkey. And, and not, not exactly, exactly right, right next to each, each other. We don't, don't know where the Pishon is, but we know where Havilah is, is kind, kind of on the southeastern south or southeastern part, part of the map. There, the, the yellow, yellow kind of is a, is a, is a way of, 
of designating where Havilah may have been. And we know that there was a river that flowed east and west from there, which may have been the Bashan. And then if you look on the other side of the Red Sea, you can see where Cush is, or Ethiopia actually went kind of further south, um, uh, southeast, and there was a river around there, which may have been the Gihon. The point, of course, is that it doesn't look like they all came from the same place. And I talked to one guy who said, well, that was before the flood, because before the flood, they came from the same place, and then the flood happened. Places, but the problem with that is, is that the story was written after the flood. Um, and so the, the writer of the story would have been referring to rivers that he knew about in his present time, most likely. And, and so whether you think that it was historical or whether your um, professor at the university says absolutely not, you can't be a Christian now if you don't believe that it's historical, what I want to say is, is this. This is what I think the biblical author would say to us if we're confused about the historicity of this account. I think the biblical author would say, don't get caught up in the geography because I'm telling you about an ideal. I'm telling you about an archetype, Eden, in this paradise and how God intended for the world to be and how God made it and how it got broken. And I want you to know that these rivers, these four rivers, are symbolic of the life-giving power of God that still flows in our life and in our world today. And it all started there in Eden, and it was good, and it was beautiful, and like, just like those rivers, but something went terribly awry. Something went wrong. And so it's okay if you believe that it's literal historical account. I would just say that the point of the story, whether you do or don't, is that it's really about us. It's about you and me, and it's about today. And so I want to talk a little bit about, first, um, one of the things that we gather from this text is um, something about the idea of marriage. Um, marriage shows up in this story, and then so does our work. We get two kind of um, uh, sort of ideals for what marriage is to be like and what our work is to be like, and then it gets messed up, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. So take a look at Genesis 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. And so this is interesting, isn't it? Uh, in the first account, it says it is good it is good, it is good, creates, God creates humankind in his own image, male and female at the same time, and says it is very good. And here is the first time God looks at his creation in the second account, and he says, it is not good. There's something not good about this. Uh, he needs somebody, this man. He needs a companion. He needs a helper as his companion, someone who can complement him, but someone who can also be a partner with him in life. And this is supposed to be kind of read as the, as the first wedding. It's an archetype, a pattern, but it goes beyond that because it's not just about marriage. It's about the fact that we as human beings need one another. We need companionship. We need helpers in our lives. And so not everybody's called to be married. The Apostle Paul said that the, the highest Christian calling is to not be married. Paul wasn't married. Jesus wasn't married. 
but they still had helpers. They still had companions. They still had friends. We need people in our lives. It is not good that you are alone, God says. And Genesis says, yet for the man, a suitable helper was not yet found to be his companion. And that's why the church is so important, especially for people who are widowed or who are single, um, because we are meant to be the family together um, as our helpers and companions of one another. So here's what happens is that uh, God says the man for the man, a suitable helper was not yet found to be his companion. And so it's as though God kind of says, I've got an idea for you, Adam. Um, why don't you take a little nap? And when you wake up from this nap, I've got a wonderful surprise for you. And so um, the man goes to sleep. He falls into a deep sleep. And God opens up his rib and he t- his rib cage. He takes out one of his ribs. He closes the flesh back up and he forms the, the, the woman and, and the man opens his eyes and his heart and he sees, uh, he sees this creature that is before him and his heart begins to beat faster and faster and faster. And then he says, oh my goodness, she is bone of my bone. She is flesh of my flesh. She is just like me. And then, of course, in a couple weeks, he will say, she is actually way different than me. But here she is. Whoa, man. She is the woman. And, of course, the scripture goes on to say, therefore, man will leave his father and mother, and the two shall cling to each other and become one flesh. For God has now made the new and improved model of the human race, the woman, to complement the man. And so the clinging, of course, and the clinging and becoming one flesh are, are euphemisms for physical intimacy. And the text says that they were naked and unashamed. It was beautiful. They were in their committed relationship with one another, they could express their partnership in physical intimacy, and there was no shame, there was no tawdry, there was no embarrassment. It was just beautiful. And it was that that what God has said is very good. And so there's a pointer here to marriage for those who are called to be married, and this is where we get our foundation for monogamy, and it's where we get our foundation for procreation. This is how God procreates the the world. The two shall become one flesh. Now, some people think that this is saying that, therefore, the woman should be subordinate to the man, right? Because, after all, the man was formed first, and and then God formed the woman out of the man to be the man's helper, kind of like an assistant, and so she should be his assistant. But we have misunderstood this passage for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The Hebrew word for helper or helpmeet is it's actually a compound word, and it's the word Isaiah, Isaiah, and it applies to the woman, that God would make her a helper for the man. But the Hebrew word, Isaiah, is most often used in the Bible to describe God. And so in Psalm 70 and verse 5, if you want to look that up, or in Psalm 33 and verse 20, you will see that the word Isaiah uh, signifies somebody who is stronger 
and comes to the weaker person to help that person. So the Lord is my helper and my shield. The Lord is my strength and my helper. And so the, the woman uh, is the Isaiah for the man. And in my study this way, I'm trying to think, how does that kind of play out in everyday life? And the first thing that kind of came to my mind is what often happens in the labor and delivery room where the woman is in excruciating pain, a pain that men do not know, do not have to experience, and she's in labor, in the labor and delivery room, screaming, pushing, groaning, suffering in pain, and you pan the camera over to the man, and what's going on? He's got a bag over his head, and he's hyperventilating. And then the man passes out, and the the woman who's in labor and the nurses have to then go and take care of the man who just can't handle the fact that his wife is the one who's suffering so much, but she's the one who's in intense pain and is willing to endure the kind of suffering. Who's the weaker link in the labor and delivery room? It is clearly the man. So this just points to me the idea of how strong God made the woman to be. Maybe not simply brute strength, but by sheer determination and character and an ability to suffer and to carry a load. That's what we find in Scripture over and over and over again, even with the women in Scripture. And there's more that I would want to say about marriage and in and, and time. But just to say that the mission of marriage is given in this text too. And the mission of marriage is not to always feel madly in love with your spouse. The feelings are, are always feelings that come and go. They ebb and flow. But the mission of marriage is to be a helper for the other person. It's to be co-helpers, to be partners in life. And if you make that your mission, aside from the feelings that come and go and the temptations that come and go as well, you will find yourself uh, satisfied in the end. Now, of course, it takes both parties to agree to this, and sometimes marriages do not work out, and there's just no way that it's going to work out, or sometimes one party wants to be a helper, and the other party just wants to be helped. And in those situations, it doesn't work. Both parties need to be committed to being helpers for one another. And that's the mission of marriage that we're given in this text. So one more thing about this paradise, and then I'll shift to how paradise got lost in the story and in our own lives. In this story, we find the foundation of marriage, but we also find the foundation of our work. Whether you're a musician or a sound person or a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or a politician or a contractor, on and on and on, an administrator, whatever it may be, we find our, the foundation of our secular work here in this text, and it's in Genesis 2.15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. Now, I don't know about you, but for, for me, what I was taught oftentimes growing up was that work was the result of the fall. And the only reason that we have to work was because Adam and Eve sinned, and then they sinned, and then now, now we have to work, and we have to suffer, and we have to toil, and work is suffering, and we have to do this in order to, to survive in this broken world in which 
we live. And while that's partially true because, yes, the fall brought suffering into the workplace, but work itself is not an inherently bad thing that we should try to avoid or that we should just use as a means to, to, to make as much money as we can so that then we can retire as soon as we can so we can go back to frolicking in the garden. Adam and Eve were not frolicking in the garden. They were gardeners. They were tending the garden. They were tilling it. They were keeping it. Now remember, this is an archetype. So the garden is symbolic. It's a representation of all of creation and all of the different spheres of work that, that bring the, make the world continue to function. Um, and so we all have different kinds of ways in which we work in the garden. If you're a musician, you're tilling the garden with music. If you're a sound person, you're tilling the garden with, with your sound and with electricity and with wires. If you're a, a veterinarian, you're tilling the garden by taking care of the animals who come to you. Okay, we, we get this idea. Um, and so we are meant to work. It is good to work. Our work is good. We will work in the new creation. And by the way, the garden is also a symbolic representation of what will be in the end. There's a garden with a tree in the beginning. There's a garden with a tree in the end. And we will work. But we will work without the suffering. We will work without the agony. We will work without the greed, without the injustice that we find often in our difficult work, working circumstances. And so God created us to work. It was part of paradise. It was part of life in the garden. This is where we find our purpose. And so the purpose of work is not to retire, but the purpose of our work is to tend the garden, is to make the world a better place. Because as humans, we're made to have a sense of purpose. And our work is, is largely where we, we get that. That doesn't mean it's always paid work. I don't mean all paid work. Uh, Stay-at-home parents, for example, is an example of this. And a helpful question that you can ask yourself if you're struggling in the workplace with, why do I do this? Do I find meaning in my work? Is this having any eternal value? A good question to ask yourself is, how is my work enabling me to fulfill my purpose of caring for the garden. How is my work enabling me to fulfill my God-given purpose of tending the garden? So part of life in paradise was to work. Working is good. It's not punishment. Uh, in his commentary on Genesis, John Calvin said that our created responsibility is not just to leave the field for the next generation, but to leave it better cultivated. And so that means that from the beginning, hum, human beings are given this unparalleled capacity to make improvements. Uh, we're gifted with the ability to be creative, to conceive of a better future, and to rise above dark distress with the light of dreams and hope. This is what it means to be human. Okay, so... We have in Genesis a picture of creation, a home in which living creatures could grow and thrive, humans and animals. They have intimacy. They have companionship. 
They have good work. They have plenty of food to enjoy. Plenty of trees with fruit all over the garden. And now I want to switch gears to the fall because now we see where conflict enters into the story. Because the text makes it very, very clear that we were not given all of the fruit in the garden. No, there was one tree whose fruit was forbidden for us, that was not given, and therefore is not a means of knowing God. And so Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And so there's a serpent here who is the representation of evil in the text. He said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And so now shame and brokenness and temptation and disobedience have entered into the world and into the story. Again, this is your story. This is my story. So now that which was made to be beautiful and and innocent through disobedience has lost the innocence by by claiming to say, no, I'm going to live according to my desires, to my will rather than to the will of God. The fracture comes into place and Adam and Eve find themselves embarrassed And now uh, intimacy is broken and fractured. Alexander Schmiemann is a wonderful Orthodox uh, theologian. He says that by giving us all of the fruit in the garden, all of the fruit that God did give to us, every time we take of the fruit that God gave to us, it is Eucharist. It's all Eucharist, he says, because it's all doxology. It's all a way of saying thanks to God, who is the giver of all good things. And remember last week when we talked about God um, making the creation, and, and I said that, that our, our proper response to the gift of creation that God gives to us is gratitude. Well, Alexander Schmiemann says that, the, that this looking at all of the fruit that God has given to us. It's all Eucharist. It's all doxology. When we take of this fruit, when we take of this bread and this, this cup that we are given, that which we will in a, in a few moments, it's all a way of saying thanks to God 
for the giver of the fruit. But there was that one fruit in the middle of the garden that was not given. And to take of it is to take that which was something that was not given from God. It's to desire it for its own purpose and its own means, not because it comes from God. And so rather than receiving life, it's a posture of I'm going to grab and take from life instead of receiving what God gives to me. And therefore, it becomes an idol. And so it's striking that this, and all of this, of course, was the part of what the fall looked like. It's striking to me that this forbidden fruit is right in the middle of the, of the garden. And by the way, this was before the fall. They could not have it all. Paradise involved not having everything that they wanted. There was something missing, something forbidden in that garden. And this hole, this, this thing that's missing, this thing that they can't have, this forbidden fruit or the, the hole in the garden, there's something that's also missing in your life and in mine. And it's not off in the distance, right? Remember that this forbidden fruit is right in the midst of the garden, which means that Adam and Eve had to pass by it every single day. They had to be reminded that even in paradise, they were not meant to have it all. Every day, they were reminded that they have limits, that they were never created to have all the fruit, that something was missing in their lives. This was part of paradise. Every one of us has something missing in our lives, some forbidden fruit that we think we want or that we would like to have, but that we cannot. And we're created this way. It's true for every human being on the planet, so you're not alone. We each have unfulfilled desires, unattained goals, things that we believe would make our lives better, happier, more content if we had them. In every garden of life, God has placed something that is beyond our created reach. It's something we can see, but we cannot have. For some, it's a better past. For others, it's a preferred future that God does not have for us. It could involve work. It could involve health, mental health, physical health a desire for something that is just not the reality, a relationship, or an achievement that you desperately want, which may or may not be beyond your reach. Our unfulfilled yearning, again, is not a consequence of the fall. It's not something to get rid of. It was part of God's intention. So there's always something missing in paradise. And, and that tree represents the object of your longing, the thing that's missing in your life. I know what it represents in mine, and with some reflection, I think you'll remember what the tree represents in your life. Again, it isn't hard to find. It's right in the midst of the garden. In some way, you pass by this tree every day, and it kind of drives us nuts, you know? I mean, there could be 999 really good trees in the garden uh, that we could take as Eucharistic ways of receiving the blessings of God, but where do we pitch our tent? Right under that one tree that we can't have. 
and we become obsessed with it. What about this thing? Other people have this. I need this. I want this. I don't have this. Let the rest of the garden go to weed. I want this one thing that I can't have. What am I going to do about this thing that I can't have? And then reaching beyond our created grasp, reaching to take instead of to receive, that's as the story continues when we lose the garden. And on the way out, we realize that it actually was paradise, only now it's paradise lost. There was a a beloved, wonderful pastor in my life years ago, and I still love him to this day. He pastored a church that I was part of growing up and served on his staff for a number of years, and he was a beloved pastor of our congregation, a 1,200-member church uh, for, I think, about 12 years. And one day, uh, the pastor called a congregational meeting, and the whole church gathered for this congregational meeting, and he came out and stepped out onto the chancel steps, this pastor who everyone loved so much, and he told them that um, for the past eight years, he had been secretly involved in an illicit relationship with a woman from a former congregation that he had been uh, counseling and, and seeing on a regular basis, and they began to have an affair that lasted for about eight years. And he said that when she, he tried to break off the affair, that she um, threatened to ruin his life. And so he did proceed to do that, and she slapped the church and him and the presbytery with lawsuits. And, um, and this pastor, in a moment's time, lost his ministry. Uh, his marriage was severely damaged, and he had to go through a long season of restoration Uh, in order to repair that relationship, but his ministry was gone forever. Paradise lost. There was something that was beyond his created reach that he could not have, but that he desired to have. And he was not meant to have that. But in reaching, you grasp, and what what you only grab then is regret when you try to take what is not given to you. According to our text, we had help in losing our good gardens. We were tempted by the serpent. But the Bible doesn't blame Adam and Eve's fall on the serpent. It blames Adam and Eve for believing the serpent's lie. Temptation is always a lie. And it's always the lie that we want to hear. The serpent tells us that we can be like God, that we can have it all. And so we reach for more and we grab regret. As the text continues, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Hear that question today. It comes across the pages. It jumps right out thousands of years. It 
it comes across uh, the scope of time and asks us ourselves, where are you? A man heads home from work late at night, and he stayed late to get some things done at the office, and on his way home, his phone rings, and he, he picks up the phone, and he sees the number on it, and he immediately remembers that he forgot his daughter's piano recital. And it's his daughter calling, and he answers it, and he goes, oh, s- s- honey, I'm so sorry. I, I got caught up, and I, I, I'm just, I'm really sorry and about your piano recital. I missed it. And, and she says, Daddy, where are you? And he says, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. And he, and he tries to make amends, and he promises to make it up to her, and she seems satisfied by this. And he hangs up the phone, and And he starts driving home, and he's just haunted with this question. Where are you? He looks into the rearview mirror, and all all he can see is his own face and his own eyes. and, And his daughter saying to him, Daddy, where are you? How did I get so lost just trying to provide better? And so in Jesus Christ, God has come looking for us. He finds us um, busily sowing fig fig leaves of excuses and blame. And then he sacrifices his son on the cross to cover our shame and restore our dignity. That's how the story will find its climax. But for now, we, we need to know that these first two pages of Genesis are really important because they're the foundation of the rest of the story. All the rest of the Bible is the recovery plan. And it begins with this question, where are you? And what we'll find in the coming weeks is that God never gives up his relentless pursuit of his creation who has gone astray. God, we thank you. Uh, We thank you for this story that makes so much sense of our lives and our experience. We thank you that you have given us so much, everything that we need. And we know that when we find ourselves wanting or yearning for that which we have not been given, really, Lord, that this is a call to worship that our longing, our yearning is meant to draw us near to you. And so we pray that you will remind us in our times of longing to draw near to you, to pray, to find our strength and our blessing in you. Because this is how you've made us. You've given us the blessing of not having it all so that in our feeling of wanting that we would turn and be united even more deeply to you. And so we thank you for that. May, may you be our desire, um, our greatest desire, to know you, to love you, and to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.